Chapter Six of the Harbor of Doubt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Harbor of Doubt by Frank Williams. Chapter Six, The Island Decides. In Freekirk Head next morning, painted signs nailed to telegraph poles at intervals along the King's Road as far as Castalia read, "Mass Meeting Tonight." Oddfellows Hall, eight o'clock. All come. Who had issued this pronunciamento, what it signified, and what was the reason for a town meeting, nobody knew, and as the men trudged down to their dories drawn up on the stony beach near the burned wharfs, discussion was intense. Finally, the fact became known that a half-dozen of the wealthiest and best-educated men in the village including Squire Hardy and the Reverend Adelbert Bish, rector of the Church of England Chapel, had held a secret conclave the night before at the squire's house. It was believed that the signs were the result, and intimated in certain obscure quarters that Pete Ellenwood, who had always claimed literary aspirations, had printed them. Oddfellows Hall was the biggest and most pretentious building in Freekirk Head, it was of two stories height, and on its gray-painted front bore the three great gilt links of the society. To one side of it stood a wreck of a former factory, and behind it was the tiny village lock-up. It marked the spot where the highway turned south at right angles on its wild journey southwest, a journey that ended in a leap into space from the three-hundred-foot cliffs of gull-haunted, perpendicular southern head. The interior of the hall was in its gala attire. Two rows of huge oil lamps extended down the middle from back to front. Others were in brackets down the side walls, and three more above the low rostrum at the far end. The chairs were in place, the windows open, and the two young fishermen who acted as janitors of the hall stood at the rear, greeting those that arrived with familiar jocularity. Into the hall, meant to accommodate two hundred, three hundred people were packed. The men in their rusty black, the women in their simple white or flowered dresses, the children brushed and pigtailed, had all brought their Sunday manners and serious, attentive faces. On the low platform presently appeared the Reverend Adelbert Bish and Squire Hardy. The rector was a young man with a thin, ascetic face. His mouth was pursed into a small line, and he wore large, round spectacles to aid his faded blue eyes. His clerical garb could not conceal the hesitating awkwardness of his manner, and the embarrassment his hands and feet caused him seemed to be his special cross in life. When the audience had become quiet, he rose and took his stand before them, lowering his head and peering over his glasses. "'Friends,' he said, "'we have gathered here tonight to discuss the welfare of Grand Mignon Island and the village of Freekirk Head.' A look of startled uncertainty swept over the simple, weather-beaten faces in front of him. "'You know that I am not exaggerating,' he continued. 
when I say that we are face to face with the gravest problem that has ever confronted us. It has pleased God in his infinite providence so to direct the finny tribes that the denizens of the deep have altered the location of their usual fishing grounds. Day after day you men have gone forth with nets and lines like the fishers of old. Day after day, also like some of the fishers of old, you have returned empty-handed. The salting bins are not filled, the drying frames are bare, the shipments to St. John's have practically ceased. I do not need to tell you that this spells destitution. This island depends on its fish, and since cod and hake and pollock have left us, we must cast about for other means of support. This meeting, then, after due deliberation last night, and earnest supplication of the Almighty for guidance, has been called to determine what course we shall pursue. Mr. Bish, warm now and perspiring freely, retired to his seat and mopped his face. Across the audience, which had listened intently, there swept a murmur of low speech. It is not given to most fisherfolk to know any more than the bare comforts of life. Theirs is an existence of ceaseless toiling, ceaseless danger, and very poor reward. Hardship is their daily lot, and it requires a great incentive to bring them to a full stop in consideration of their future. Here, then, in Freekirk Head, were three hundred fishermen with their backs against the wall, mutely brave because it is bred in the bone, quietly preparing for a final stand against their hereditary enemies, hunger and poverty. The low murmur of awestruck conversation suddenly stopped, for Squire Hardy, with his fringe of white whiskers violently mussed, had risen to speak. "'Mr. Bish has just about got the lobster in the pot,' he declared. "'But I want to say one thing more. "'Things were bad enough up to a week ago, "'but since the fire they have been a great deal worse. "'Mr. Naylor and Mr. Thomas, who owned the fish stand that burned, "'have been cleaned out. "'They gave employment to about twenty of you men.' Those men are now without any work at all, because the owners of the other fish stands have all the trawlers and dorymen they need. Even if they didn't have, there are hardly enough fish to feed all hands on the island. More than that, and now I hope you won't mind what I am going to say, for we've all been in the same boat one time or another, Mr. Boughton can't be our last hope much longer." You and I and all of us have got long-standing credit at his store for supplies we paid for later from our fishing. The fire of the other night cost Mr. Boughton a lot, and as most of his money is represented in outstanding credit, he cannot advance any more goods. Mr. Boughton is not here himself, for he told me he would never say that word to people that he has always trusted and lived with all his life. But I am saying it for him, because I think I ought to, and you can see for yourselves how fair it is. 
Now, that's about all I've got to add to what Mr. Bish has said to you. Yes, there's one thing more. Great Harbor and Seal Cove below us here are as bad, if not worse off, than we are. We cannot look for help in that direction, and I will be a lot thinner man than I am now before I ever appeal to the government. We're not paupers, and we don't want city newspapers starting subscription lists for us. So, as Mr. Bish has said, the only thing for us to do is to get our eyes out of the heavens and see what we can do for ourselves. The squire sat down, pulling at his whiskers and looking apprehensively at the rector, of whose polished periods he stood in some awe. The audience was silent now. The squire had brought home to these men and women some bald, hard facts that they had scarcely as yet admitted even to themselves. There was scarcely one among them whose account with Bill Boughton was fully satisfied, and now that this mainstay was gone, the situation took on an entirely different aspect. For some minutes, no one spoke. Then an old man, bearded to the waist, got upon his feet. "'I've seen some pretty hard times on this island,' he said. "'But none like this here. "'I've thought it over some, and I'd like to make a suggestion. "'My son Will is over on the back of the island picking dulse. "'The market for that is good. "'He's even got ten cents a pound this summer. "'This is the month of August, and winter is considerable ways off. "'How about all hands turning to and picking dulse?' "'This idea was received in courteous silence.' There were men there who had spent their summers reaping the harvest of salty, brown kelp from the rocks at low tide, and they knew how impractical the scheme was. Although the island exported yearly $15,000 worth of the strange stuff, it was plain that should all the men devote themselves to it, the return would by no means measure up to the labor. One after another, then, the fishermen got to their feet and discussed this project. In this cause of common existence, embarrassment was forgotten, and tongues were loosed that had never before addressed a public gathering. A proposition was put forward that the islanders should dispute the porpoise-spearing monopoly of the quaddy Indians that were already sailing across the channel for their annual summer's sport, but this likewise met with defeat. A general exodus of men to the sardine canning factories in Lubeck and Eastport was suggested, and met with some favor until it was pointed out that the small sardine herring had fallen off vastly in numbers, and that the factories were hard put to it to find enough work for their regular employees. Self-consciousness and restraint were forgotten in this struggle for the common preservation, and above the buzz of general intense discussion there rose always the voice of some speaker with an idea or suggestion. Code Schofield had come to the meeting with Pete Ellenwood and Jimmy Thomas, both dory-mates at different times. They sat fairly well forward, and Code, glancing around during the proceedings, had caught a friendly greeting from Elsa Mallaby, 
who, with some of her old girlhood friends, sat farther back. The solemn occasion for and spirit of the meeting had made a deep impression on him. But as the time passed, and those supposedly older and wiser delivered themselves merely of useless schemes, a plan that had come into his mind early in the evening began to take definite shape. As he sat there he pondered the matter over until it seemed to him the only really feasible idea. Finally, after almost two hours of discussion with no conclusion reached, a pause occurred, and Code, to the amazement of his companions, got upon his feet. As he did so, he flushed, for he wondered how many of those eyes suddenly fixed upon him were eyes of hostility or doubt. The thought stung him to a greater determination. "'I don't want to be considered bold after so many older men have spoken,' he said, looking at the squire. "'But I have a suggestion to make.' "'Go ahead, make it,' bellowed the squire cordially. "'I wish more young men would give us their ideas.' "'Thinking it over, I have come to this conclusion,' proceeded Schofield. There is only one thing the men on this island do perfectly, and that is fish. Therefore, it seems only common sense to me that they ought to go on fishing. A ripple of laughter ran around the room that was now hot and stuffy from the glare and smell of the great oil lamps. Code heard the laugh, and his brows drew down into a scowl. Of course, they cannot go on fishing here but there are any number of places north and east of us where they can go on. I mean the Grand Banks and the Cape Shore in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. We have schooners and sloops, we have dories and men, and can get provisions on credit, I should think, for such a cruise. That, then, is my idea, that the captains of Grand Mignon fit out their vessels hire their crews on shares, and go out on the banks for fish, like the Gloucester men and Frenchmen. If we do it, we're going against the best in the world, but I don't believe there is a fisherman here who doesn't believe we can hold our own. Suddenly, far back in the room, a woman arose. She was young, and her face showed that once it might have been beautiful. Her frame was large and angular, and her rusty black clothes sat awkwardly upon it. But youth and beauty and girlish charm had gone from her long since, as it does with those whose men battle with the sea. She was a widow, and a little girl clung sleepily to her dress. "'Code Schofield!' she cried. "'What about the women?' You ain't going off to leave us fight the winter all alone, are you? You ain't going to sail them winter gales on the shoals, are you? How many of you do you suppose will come back? She shook off those near her who tried to pull her down into her seat. Last year they lost a hundred and five out of Gloucester, and every year they make witters by the dozen. If it was set in India's coral strand, you'd know it was a fishin' town by its widders. And Free Kirk Head'll be just like it. I lost my man in a gale. 
Her voice broke, and she paused. "'Do you want us all to be widders? "'How can ye go and leave us? "'It's the women the sea kills with misery, not the men. "'What can we do when you're gone? "'There ain't any money nor much food. "'If there comes a fire, we'd all be cleaned out, "'for what could we do? "'If you'll only think of us a little, us women, "'maybe you won't go.' She sank down amid a profound silence. "'Poor thing,' rumbled Pete Ellenwood. "'She shouldn't have come. Al Green was her man.' Sobbing sounded in another quarter of the hall, and the men looked at one another, disconcerted. Still no one spoke. The matter hung in the balance, for all saw instantly that could the women be provided for, this was the solution of the problem. Though taken aback, Code stood to his guns and remained on his feet. Suddenly, in the middle of the hall, another woman rose. Her motion was accompanied by the rustle of silk, and instantly there was silence, for Elsa Mallaby commanded considerable respect. Code saw her with surprise as he turned. She noted his puzzled expression and flashed him a dazzling smile that was not lost, even in that thrilled and excited crowd. He answered it. "'I consider that Captain Schofield has solved the problem,' she said in a clear, level tone. "'There is no question but that the men of Grand Mignon should fit out their ships and fish on the banks.' There is also no question but that the objection Mrs. Green raised makes such a thing impossible. Now I want to tell you something. I belong in Freekirk Head, and you have all known me since I was little. Hardluck Jim Mallaby belonged in Freekirk Head and made his money out of the island. Jim's money is mine now and you can rest assured that while the men are away fishing, no woman or child on Grand Mignon shall go hungry while I am alive to hear of it. Some people hate me because I live in a big house and have everything. It is only natural, and I expect it, but ever since Jim left me I have wondered how I could do the most good with his money here. I would like to give it, but if you won't have that, you can borrow it on a long-time loan without interest or security. Now I will go out and you can talk it over freely. With a companion, she walked up the aisle and to the door, but before she reached it, Code Schofield was standing on a chair, his hat in his hand. Three cheers for Mrs. Mallaby, he yelled and the very building shook with the tumultuous response. It was five minutes before the squire, purple with shouting for order, could be heard above the noise. Then, with hand upraised, he shouted, "'All in favor of Schofield's plan, say aye!' And the aye was the greatest vocal demonstration ever given in Free Kirkhead. End of chapter 6 Recording by Roger Moline.